Hi, this is Toka U.S. Brand Manager. I'm here with Rick Kapala. Rick has been the Program Director and Head Nordic Ski Coach for the Sun Valley Ski Education Program Foundation since 1987. He has been named the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Coach of the Year three times. He has coached the Senior World Championship level as well as at the Junior World Championships. The Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation has regularly qualified two and sometimes even four athletes to the U.S. World Junior Team annually for many years which is remarkable. Despite this enormous success, Rick's true legacy is in how he changes lives for the better. There are thousands of skiers in the United States with a deep appreciation for how Rick has prepared them, not only for elite ski racing, but also for life. So Rick, I really appreciate you being with me and with the American Ski Public today. Thanks, Ian. It's uh, nice to be here and get a chance to, to chat with you. So I know you dislike talking about yourself, and for that reason, I appreciate you being with me and the American skiing public today even more. Well, great. Well, uh, well, try to, if I start wandering around, just guide me back in, and we'll try to stay on point. Okay. So can we start out by, I'd like to ask you where you grew up and how you started skiing. Uh, yeah, this is actually a pretty simple story, and it's funny because it's, um, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, my phone does this stuff once in a while. No it started off, uh, I grew up in, in uh, southern Michigan, just north of Detroit, and the, um, the, the situation was basically I was a kid that liked being outside a lot and running around, and I had some buddies. I was growing, I, I graduated from high school in 76, and so that was great when, of course, when Billy Coke won a medal, and I had some friends that had somehow got connected with cross-country skiing separate from me, but said, hey, this is something cool and fun that you can do. But I wasn't competing, right? And, and so we were just going out on skis uh, and farm fields and different places where we lived and playing around on our skis. And then I went to school at Michigan Technological University. And uh, I went there because I was going to get a, I did get a degree in biology. And it was also the farthest place I could get from Detroit and still be in state for tuition purposes. And if you've been to Michigan Tech or the Upper Peninsula, it's just surrounded by mountains and lakes and rivers in every direction. And that's what I was really excited about. So when I was there, I was thinking I was going to continue my career uh, in wrestling. I was really involved in a number of high school sports, but wrestling was one of the things. And I know that's going to sound odd to people, but I could touch on some similarities between the mindsets of wrestlers and skiers. They're very actually similar. Uh, but I got hurt and, uh, and I couldn't continue with my wrestling career. And I just happened to be in a dorm with a couple of the people that were on the ski team, cross country ski team at Michigan tech. And, uh, they knew I was sort of an active guy and I was always running and I was training. And even after I got hurt from this injury and they said, why don't you switch to cross country skiing? You know, to ski a little bit. And so I went out and I was immediately sold. It took me all of like seven minutes of the first time I joined the training group at Michigan Tech for a workout. And so it was my right in the beginning at Michigan Tech when I got there. So I didn't really, I was sort of what you could call a late adopter to skiing in terms of my own athletic career. Maybe it was a little simpler then because you had classic skiing only and the sport was still in pretty rudimentary stages. So if you were somebody that was, you know, you like to hammer. I had a relatively strong upper body, so I just could double pull my way around courses even before double pulling became a thing. Anyway, 
And so, yeah, so I started that way and then I raced all through college and then uh, turned it into a ski coaching career. So after you graduated in tech, I know you were in Alaska. What, how'd you get up there? What happened? So what happened is uh, I graduated from Michigan Tech and I actually spent one year post-graduating um, being an assistant coach for the, cross, for the team at Michigan Tech, sort of as like a graduate assistant. I was teaching biology courses, uh, freshman biology at Michigan Tech as like a lab uh, technician supervisor. And I was also grooming ski trails. And so I did that for a year. And then I, mar I married a gal from the Alpine team. We're still good friends. And, and we, her job took us to Seattle. And I got a job. I just got super lucky, um, serendipity, I guess. And I looked in the Seattle, I think it's called the Seattle Times News. And I saw that Pacific Lutheran University was advertising for a ski coach. And there, they needed one coach who would coach both alpine and cross country. And typically they would order, they would, excuse me, hire somebody to do alpine skiing that didn't know anything about cross country. And I convinced them to do it the other way. And so, so I became the ski coach at uh, Pacific Lutheran University for two years. And then uh, my wife at that time, her career as an engineer for Chevron Oil took her to, we had an op opportunity to move to Anchorage. So she said, well, you know, this is an opportunity. Would you like to go up there? And I said, sure. So we moved to Anchorage and again, sort of dumb luck. Um, I opened up the newspaper. Okay. I was thinking about going back to college for an advanced degree at that point anyway, but I opened up the paper and West Anchorage high school was looking for a ski coach and a running coach and that position. And so uh, I just, Happened to see it. I walked in. I got the job. I think I was 25, 24, 25 at that point. And then I was really lucky because, again, when I when I walked in at West Anchorage, I'd only been coaching for a couple of years at this point. Well, third three. But I, I got a little lucky because on my team was a woman, if anybody has been paying attention to U.S. ski history, by the name of Nina Kempel. And Nina was joined on that team by some other really good skiers, including people like Joey Caterniccio, who went on to ski in college. Then a woman uh, by the name of uh, Priska Eminer, Eminiger, the Swiss gal, who was a bit of a hammer. Uh, and then uh, a gal who had a really good junior career by the name of Deanna Doris. And so the girls team was solid. And then I had this really sort of skinny kid that was really – charismatic but like needed to do a lot of eating of food and getting bigger and stronger by the name of Chris Grover and uh so I had this cadre of like really good young skiers at West Anchorage that I learned a lot from in because at that point in time I'd been coaching just predominantly older athletes my first few years had been more working with collegiate level athletes and so getting a chance to work with juniors in at West Anchorage really provided me a foundation that I combined with my experience with working with older skiers that, you know, that helped me grow a lot as a coach. So anyway, so that's how I ended up in Anchorage. And I was there for, I think like three, three winners. I know you won at least one state championship there or two. And I think, I can't remember, I'm sorry to say, but I think yeah. a couple uh, yeah. and Nina was always crushing it. And then we had a couple of good young boys that were there by the name of uh, uh, Stacy Moon. 
Uh, he's still very active in the in the Masters community. And then another guy who went on to ski for Middlebury by the name of Tony Slayton. And those guys were solid guys. Um, you know, there was a boy on our team by the name of Andrew Leakish, who un unfortunately passed away while in high school. But the Leakish trails, those amazing trails in Anchorage were built in his honor, spearheaded by a couple of guys, Bill Spencer and uh, Jim Galanis. Uh, back in the day. And so it's really interesting, like how time marches on, you know, it's been 35 or 40 years, but there's still all these threads that connect the community of cross country skiers in a way that's really strong. And uh, so anyway, but yeah, that's, the, that's the Genesis story, I guess. Super. Yeah. How, um, I guess when you're in Anchorage, probably you had the most opportunity to kind of fall in love with the outdoors and nature. Well, I had already, I was already a wacky nature guy. Um, uh, my college job um, all through college was I was a backcountry park ranger in Olympic National Park. So I would get done with school in the beginning of May at Michigan Tech, jump in my van, haul butt across the country. Uh, I was working predominantly on the west side of the Olympic Peninsula in the whole rainforest. And I would arrive there and throw on my backpack and disappear into the mountains for three months, pretty much nonstop all summer, just uh, doing trail work and working with the public in the backcountry. And so, you know, the dream job, basically, as a college guy. And then I, and, and from a training standpoint, I would just, I had an extra genie with me and I would just run around in the mountains, getting strong and pulling on um, the extra genie every morning for a half an hour or more. And then also doing a ton of just hard manual labor. But anyway, so Anchorage was a dream because, you know, you're surrounded by this amazing, amazing wilderness in every direction. And, and I, I probably didn't get enough time there to go and see everything I wanted to see, but I got to see some, it was fun. So we're going to get into skiing, but I, I wanted to ask you this, <laughs> but I didn't want to work it into the interview, but I've seen pictures and reports and, and I know where you've gone on a lot of your vacations where you do fishing trips with your wife and you're basically sleeping around bears and fishing and there's bears all around you. Mm -hmm. Normal people don't do that because they don't, I mean, you obviously, you know, your way around bears and nature and being a biologist and having spent a lot of time around there, you know, what's dangerous and what's not to me, that's pretty fascinating because there aren't many people like I love the outdoors and I love the mountains and I love wildlife, but that's something, and I've been around bears, mm -hmm. uh, something you, need, you know, like, yeah. you know what you're doing there. Can you talk about that for a second? It's fascinating to me. Well, um, again, you know, well, let me, again, it's, I'm so sorry if I'm boring everybody with this stuff, but I think a lot of what I'm talking about when I sort of step out of my own personal experiences, it, it should inform coaches as they try to better understand their athletes, like where their athletes are coming from. So it's sort of important to know sort of the orientation of, you know, more, more about your kids than just whether or not they have a high max VO2 or whether they've got a strong v, V1 or something, you know what I mean? But like for me, I got really connected with the outer doors as a youngster because my dad was really into hunting and fishing. And in this suburban high school, uh, just north of Detroit called Adlai Stevenson High School, I started a backpacking club when I was like 14 years old. And my parents were really, I wouldn't say they were strict, but they were firm with me and they would and my my siblings and it would be like okay knowing your curfew every night is nine o'clock 
but they would also let me get on a Greyhound bus with another friend and ride a Greyhound bus, you know, a thousand miles to Great Smoky Mountains National Park and go backpacking for like three weeks to get on another bus at the termination of where we hiked to and take the bus back. It was weird, right? But then I'd come home and I have to be in, in the house at nine. So I just had this big love of the outer doors. And, and um, with regards to like grizzlies, you know, the, the places I like to go happen to include grizzlies on the landscape. And so I just over time have gotten, I don't want to say comfortable, uh, I would probably use the word respectful, but, um, but, and I don't know if confidence is the right word, but just like I have a sense about what we should and shouldn't be doing when we should and shouldn't be doing it, which doesn't mean you couldn't have a bad encounter with a bear. But um, I think over time, you just tend to get uh, a set of experiences about how to do it maybe more safely and how not to put yourself in risk. Having said that, my wife, would argue that uh, my fixation on being in places where grizzlies are is a, a source of angst and anxiety for her. <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, I just, we just love it being outside. I mean, I was just in, in uh, Jackson this last weekend fishing at night uh, for lake trout on Jenny Lake at, and we were out there at three o'clock in the morning and I uh, was with Matt Whitcomb, who's oh. the U S national team head coach and Gordon. And, uh, we got, we, we came out finally at like four in the morning. Um, and nobody's in the park, you know, the park's closed. It's just us and the elk and the, you know, the trout. And um, Matt gets in his car to start leaving to drive back home to go to Vermont before he eventually goes off to the World Cup. And the first thing he sees, like, I don't know, maybe five miles from where we were with this, was a sow with two cubs, <laughs> a grizzly. And we're like, oh yeah, it's better that we bumped, that you bumped into him then than last night. Okay. So, Long-winded. I'm so sorry. No, it's it's fascinating. Like I said, I've I've been around grizzlies in um, the Russian River. Mm -hmm. Was it called Cooper's Landing? Copper mm -hmm. Landing. No, that's uh, Copper Landing. Copper yeah. Landing. Now I was up there with my family members, and you know, just wandering around in the rivers, and, and um, saw a grizzly and a cub, and kept the river between us. But you know, what's the river going to do with it? But anyway, I was just. I have a very short um, sample size in terms of experience, you know, unlike you. And I was thinking, as soon as a grizzly showed that it didn't like me being there, we split. Like it, it communicated that before it became a problem. I, I mean, that's just that's just being won't communicate it. <laughs> that's you know. just being smart, Ian. But you could talk to those guys up at APU and the Fairbanks guys and stuff, and their bear stories would never end. Absolutely, yeah. sure. So, yeah. Okay. Well. Um, can you tell me about how you came to the Sun Valley program in 1987 and, and then okay, first how, how you got the job and what you found when you got there? Yeah, so I'll try to keep this quick. Uh, the Sun Valley program had been pretty firmly developed, you know, well-developed by that point in time. Uh, the Ski Foundation had both an alpine and a cross-country team. We have other disciplines now like big mountain and freestyle, uh, free ride and stuff. But then it was just alpine and cross-country. The program was quite small. We had, I think, uh, nine kids on our high school age team. That would be like U16 and older. And we had, I want to say like 11 or 12 kids in total otherwise that were like middle school age kids or younger, right? And I was able to uh, land the job um, pretty, 
primarily because Sue Long, who had been coaching there for a couple of years and having taken over from a gentleman by the name of Kevin Swigert, who had a very successful ski racing career himself. Uh, but Sue Long decided she wanted to try to come back and make the 88 Olympic Games and in Canmore. And so she gave notice that she was going to return to her athletic career. Uh, they started advertising for the position. And again, I, I was a little bit lucky because I had this stable of really successful juniors uh, at Anchorage. I was in the right place in the right time. And um, so I was able to land the job. And when I got down, you know, skiing was cross country skiing was a thing in the valley. And as much as there was the Boulder Mountain Tour had gotten started, um, there was groomed cross-country ski trails at a couple of locations in the valley, including Galena Lodge. The Harriman Trail, you know, the Boulder Mountain Trail that's groomed all the time now, was not groomed then. It was only groomed for the race. And so, and there was, you know, on any given weekend, if there was a master's race, there'd be 10 or, you know, 15, 20 people that would show up. Not a ton, but some. But uh, it was still very nascent, if you will, if that's a word that works. Uh, but there was... Uh, and there remains a really strong love and uh, and uh, uh, appreciation for all things skiing in this valley, right? And so there was a lot of um, space, if you will, for a cross-country ski program to expand uh, simply because um, the, 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 the field was rich with opportunity, if you will, so... So when you started in 87, where did you do your training in the winter, up at Galena? It all depended. Uh, no, we, we were fortunate. Um, the place that we all call Lake Creek existed then, albeit in a much more rustic form. Um, this gentleman I referenced earlier, Kevin Swigert, and another man by the name of John Plummer, who actually went on to work as a national team ski technician for Canada, uh, uh, in the 80s and early 90s, John, and John was an assistant for Kevin, they built this little teeny log cabin at Lake Creek in the parking lot there. And across the bridge that goes over the Bigwood River was a cross-country, a small cross-country ski area where there was like maybe 5Ks there. And the Forest Service was grooming it then with one of those big double track, you know, skidoo alpines. And so that had become the home of the cross-country ski team. This little 70-foot by 30-foot log cabin with a pot-bellied stove. And uh, we had one van then. And, uh, the you know, if it snowed like hell, it took us a few days to get the grooming reestablished because it wasn't piston bully groomed. So we would train there in the winter uh, predominantly. And then we would go to Galeno once in a while. And the skiing was quite good there. And then we'd occasionally go over to Sun Valley Nordic Center uh, where they had a Nordic trail system on the on the golf course, which was, you know, sort of flat. So it wasn't always the best place to train for sort of some of the athletic objectives you were aiming for, but it worked. And so there was plenty of places to ski. It wasn't like we were carving out, you know, a ski trail in the wilderness to get started. The thing, though, that really helped, though, here was at the same time, right after I moved here, uh, led by a gentleman by the name of Bob Rosso, as well as a few others, people had envisioned the development of a valley-wide um, separated bike path system. And that went in in like 89 and 90. 
And so immediately when I got here within a year or two, we had like 30 miles of separated bike paths for roller skiing. And that, that was a big deal and remains a game changer for us in terms of our training opportunities in the Valley. When was the Lake Creek hut, as we know it now, when was that built? Because that's a huge asset for you all, huh? Oh, my God, yeah. It's 4,500 4, square feet. In its current form, it was finished in 2000 and, uh, oh, I want to say, I want to say 2006, 2007. It started off as this little log-sided cabin, three-sided three -sided log cabin. Then we added a wax room onto that, and then we lived with that for about 15 years. And then um, through the generosity of some uh, family foundations that were supporting the team, we were able to basically tear it all down and build the existing structure in, like I said, in like six or seven. And then we just completed a couple of days, not a couple of days ago, a year ago, a renovation of that same facility, basically gutted it updated everything and uh, we're really lucky that we have that because that building serves as this cultural locus if you will for our community a social center as much as a athletic facility hmm. right so yeah so we've had it there and you know our ski trails on the other side of the bridge they're they're challenging and so we're able the school buses drive up drop the kids off in the parking lot and leave and the parents come and pick up their kids after practice. So we've got this pretty, pretty sweet little system going now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I have a question that not too many people could answer, except for you being in your, the situation you're in. Many of the top Nordic clubs in the U.S. are Nordic only, such as Cambridge mm -hmm. Sportsman Union, Craftsbury, Tuna, APU, Winter Stars, L&R in the Twin Cities. Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation, like some other big clubs, I would say Steamboat, Park City, BSF, Sugar Bowl, Stratton, for example. Vale. Vale, yeah. Are supported by an infrastructure that supports alpine and snowboard racing as well as Nordic. I imagine being part of a club with alpine and snowboard as well as Nordic improves the collective resources, such as strength training, um, equipment, and team vehicles, as well as perhaps the ability to fundraise. Can you please comment on the advantages and disadvantages, if there are any, in being part of a club with Alpine and Snowboard as well as Nordic? Yeah, um, I guess I'd probably preface my comments by saying that it's really important to understand that no one model fits all. You know, um, obviously in the upper Midwest where there's not like a strong Alpine component to skiing culture in general, although there is, right? I probably there's a bunch of Minnesota Alpine skiers right now getting, you know, unhappy with me, but, um, but, you know, not any one program design model uh, works exclusively everywhere. Right. And so these, these big mount, I shouldn't say big, these, these old time mountain ski towns, all of which you just listed, right? They, all of their ski culture initially grew out of alpine skiing. Uh, in many cases, like right after all these guys returned from the 10th Mountain Division from World War II, and they came back and they just started building ski areas everywhere because they said, well, this is, this is way a lot nicer than fighting a war. And so we're going to go build a ski area and we're going to have fun with people in the mountains. And so uh, in the... In the case of Sun Valley, 
cross-country skiing, uh, when it was added in 73 to the roster of sports that were included under the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation's umbrella, um, benefited immediately by being able to take advantage of administrative organization, fundraising, you know, all this stuff, like why, why have to have, why do you need to have a bookkeeper for your Alpine team and then a bookkeeper for your freestyle team and a bookkeeper for your crossroad team? You get efficiencies of administration support, administrative support in these bigger clubs that you would pay dearly for with resources that could otherwise be devoted to uh, athletics in a respective uh, discipline. So the advantages are multifold. I, I I, um, I think like here in our Valley, everything we do with regards to all of our ski disciplines, ski and snowboard disciplines, um, all lift all boats because we continue to then support the narrative that, you know, other places can be hotbeds for football, right? And other places can be hotbeds for swimming, right? A place like Sun Valley or Jackson or Vale or Steamboat, right, or Stratton, what we can be good at is engaging people in the sports uh, of cross, cross country skiing, alpine skiing, all of them, right? And when, when uh, a thing like winter ski sport and skiing sort of becomes interwoven into a, a community's fabric, right, then then a lot of the hardest work that you have to do to try to promote the sport has become instead sort of self-perpetuating, right? So that's the real benefit of it, right? Because it's ski, 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 ski everywhere. And, you know, we have kids on our team that snowboard and cross-country ski, alpine and cross-country ski, big mountain and cross-country ski. Our, our top U16 girl, who's an amazing young athlete, a gal by the name of Sammy Smith, is also one of the top 10 freestylers in the country, you know, bump and jump skier. And, and so we look at that and we really think it's great because we don't really buy into the extreme specialization at too young of an age. Um, and so if kids are alpine skiing and cross country skiing, we just think they're super complimentary. And so, yeah. Uh, that's what's been good. Well, I haven't found any disadvantages to it. Uh, our our board of directors are so into uh, cross-country skiing. We're not as big as Alpine. I think they have like 350 kids in their program and we have like 250 or so. And but but it but it doesn't really matter, you know, how many we have. What matters is are we delivering great programming to kids at every level within the community? That's that's an idea that, that you mentioned not only having the different, you know, alpine snowboard, free skiing, et cetera, with Nordic, kind of solidifies a cultural element, you know, it's a ski culture, but I also like right. the idea of, of maybe the throwback where you have a skier's a skier, you know, whether you're going downhill or cross country or whatever, back country. I mean, I, I, in the Mountain West, at least in parts of New England, there's that idea of, of multi-sport skiers and you know I, I like that idea and concept I, I'm not so although I do focus on Nordic myself personally these days I do like the idea of the multi-sport skier and you know you look outside and then look at what the snow is doing and then you decide what you want to do you know depending on yeah. what the weather's doing yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the kids on our the kids on our high school team or goal team or whatnot. They're you know they're pretty focused in this window of their time in cross country competitive uh, engagement. But we have so many kids because they live in this amazing place, these mountains, you know, surrounded by these mountains. And again, I'm sure this is true also in all these other mountain communities that have cross country skiing. Is that the kids know how to put skins on their skis? They're back under skis and they hike a ridge line and they know how to dig an abbey pit and they know how to ski in the backcountry. Uh, one of our previously, one of our really most successful juniors, a woman by Mally Noise, um, she skied for us for four or five years and uh, as high school. I think she did post grad with us and then she went on skiing college, um, had a, a good ski college NCAA career. Well, she's now become one of these amazing uh, big line big mountain, climb up some gnarly ass peak somewhere and ski ridiculous lines kind of skiers. And she has said, I've read in a few interviews that she has put out because, you know, she's a sponsored, you know, backcountry crazy skier. Um, she's just said a lot of her capacity to apply herself was built in cross country skiing. So I think we're just trying to prepare people for the next adventure. Let's put it that way. Cool. Yeah. So here's a quote from you. You once said, if you can't build or have a good cross-country ski program in Sun Valley, something's wrong. Can you comment on that? Because I, I agree with you. I, I've been worried about that thing coming back and biting me in the butt at some <laughs> point in time. Um, but I think the point about it is, is that like our community, I think, sits in a little bit of what I call the sweet spot. We're, we're big enough that we have, you know, like 20, 15 to 20,000 people that live in the greater community. And from that, we obviously can grow enough athletic, you know, predisposed talent over time, but we're big enough that we also have access to a lot of uh, enough resource. And I'm not going to fool myself or anybody else. You know, Sun Valley is a fairly affluent community. And so we're able to let leverage I don't like that word. I'm going to back out of that word. Engage people um, uh, who share our interests in ski sport and promoting the opportunities for kids to, to get behind the program. But we're not so big that we disappear into the background against all kinds of other sport, sport noise. So there are way more skiers, for example, that ski in and around Minneapolis, right? Ooh, I mean, of course there are. Right now, however, I will say this, we have about 20,000 people in the valley, maybe a little less, and uh, the BCRD sells something like 3,500 trail passes, discrete individual season trail passes. So there's a lot of people that go cross-country skiing here. Yeah. But, but you look at like the Twin Cities, and a challenge that they face in the Twin Cities is that either, even though they have by numbers way more people than we have skiing, the skiing, the sport, it's a challenge in Minneapolis, I would suggest, because they're competing against the Minnesota Vikings, the Minnesota Twins, University of Minnesota Gopher football, right? There's all these other things that occupy the, you know, take the oxygen out of the room in terms of sporting public, public sporting awareness, right? And so we, on the other hand, are are big enough that we can get enough kids into our system. And then we also can generate, again, albeit because we have a fairly affluent community support for our program 
in critical areas like building a, a ski facility. Um, but we're not so big that we don't, that we disappear, right, in the community of all these other things that are competing for attention. And I referenced early on that we have this bike path system, right? Um, this is a rhetorical question. When is our ski program the most visible year round? When in, when in the year is our cross-country ski program the most visible to the uninformed skiing public in our valley? That's a question for you. Roller skiing and the bike path. Yeah, it's, it is insane. I, I am constantly standing on the side of the trail somewhere coaching or Ashley McQueen, one of our coaches will be or you know, or Chris Mallory and random people come up to you and they go, I've been watching your kids ski around here now for years. Wow. Right. And so we, it, it's really interesting because when winter comes, we all go to the ski areas, everybody puts on their hats and disappears and you're just at the ski areas. But in the summertime, in this little valley, cross-country skiers are everywhere all the time. Some people refer to us as a locust or a plague, but, um, but they're everywhere, right? And so that, these kind of, that's what I mean by the sweet spot. It's like everything is here, right? We're at a place where we get, we're at an elevation where we get really good snow, but we're not at such a high elevation that we retard or we limit um, velocity development, right? Because we're at 6,000, right? We're not at 9,000, right? Mm -hmm. we, get, we get snow and it stays all winter long, right? We have these bike paths, you know, the valley is really narrow. And so you can live virtually anywhere in the valley and jog over to a trailhead somewhere and take off on a run for hours, right? Or just grab a ridge and go, as opposed to having to drive you know, 45 minutes across an urban area, which I'm not ripping on urban areas. I'm just simply saying that it's like the efficiency in terms of getting out the door and being able to train in really inspiring natural settings, it's really, really high. I mean, we're really efficient in being able to deliver programming and it's right in front of everybody's noses. And so if we happen to have kids once in a while that ski well, then we garner even more attention for the program because the community cares about skiing. And if somebody skis well, you know, then, I mean, they have parades in town here, like in the past for you know, like Olympic medalists, right? right. And you're not going to parade in downtown Minneapolis, no matter how good a, a, a skier comes along, maybe. I, I don't know. So, so anyway, so that's, that's what I mean. That's a concept that I wanted to bring up and you just did a good job of addressing it. But just to follow up then, like I, I would consider Sun Valley, Ketchum area to be kind of an island. You're geographically isolated. Um, the whole area has around, I would guess around, I thought around 12,000 residents is what I was thinking. You were saying- it's a, li it's, a little bit, it's a little bit more than that, but not much more. And it swells a bit in the, in the tourist seasons, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And this, it doesn't give you much of a population base to choose to, to kind of get talented athletes from. So you have kind of this trade-off. You could be located next to Boise or Salt Lake City where you're fighting culture, you know, mainstream sports and things like that. Or you could have a smaller community where skiing is the sport and, you know, it's kind of like the high school thing to do, you know, be a skier. Yeah, well, they, no, no matter how much we got going on, there's not a bunch of kids in this town who wake up in the morning going, say, 
I want to be a cross country skier. I mean, we've yeah. got our own set of challenges to overcome, but yes. Sure. But it, it, with that kind of balance in mind, you're happy with not only all the other infrastructure and advantages of being in the Ketchum area, but, but the size of the community that you can draw from versus the amount of uh, how strong the ski culture is. Cause I think the bigger the community, the smaller the ski culture can theoretically be in the United States. You right. pretty much hit the sweet spot on that, you think, too? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the, there's always the nature versus nurture argument regarding competitive excellence. And um, I would recommend, I mean, this has probably been stated over and over again. If, if people are sort of curious about sort of athletic development, they might consider reading the book, uh, The Sports Gene. I love um, yeah. Anyway, and it's, you know, it's been probably read by everybody by now anyway, but, but we, we, I think a lot of it has to do with Ian is like how you define your mission. Right. And we certainly are trying to have, uh, provide our kids that are in our competitive programming, every advantage that they have, we try to provide them really positive coaching direction so that they can reach their athletic goals. Right. But, um, you know, elite international aerobic talent doesn't grow on trees, period, right? It's just, you know, if you could unlock the code about identifying it, um, you know, you would, I don't, make, I don't know if you make a lot of money, but not that that would be the point, but, but you sort of know it when you see it. And, and in our community, um, we, we get our share of, athletic talent into the program probably because as i was alluding to earlier we have a strong community presence right having said that a lot if you're in a place like boise you're competing with all these other sports for those rarefied athletic talents and you maybe don't get them into cross-country skiing either right and so while we may not have as many people the folks that we do have engaged with our programs maybe we can deliver a really amazing, hopefully amazing program or a transformative program would be a better word for them, regardless of what their ultimate capacities may be. And note that very few people, uh, especially as juniors, ever really come close to glimpsing what their true athletic capacities are, right? So, so just, you know, regardless of where you're starting from, you you in three or four years as a youngster in high school, you're, you really still in all honesty, don't know what your capacities are. If you've butted up against what your predetermined genetic capacity limits may be, you don't know that you haven't done enough work. You haven't trained enough. You haven't made enough progress. You haven't been at peak biological match maturation long enough yet. So, so what we're really trying to do is engender in kids a, a love of challenge so that they can take that love of challenge elsewhere and apply it so that they lead a life where they are um, leading an enriched life and they're, they're willing to take on things that are hard in their life and not shrink from the challenge. That's one thing we're trying to do. And, and then the other thing we're trying to do is is to just engage as many people for the benefit of the community as a whole in healthy outdoor lifestyle, 
right? If we do those things really well, then the competitive side of it, I think, sort of takes care of itself. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Right? I think this is one of the things that I've noticed. With a smaller program, especially a much smaller program, I think it's much more difficult to coach because you don't have the culture that you just referred to where kids are put in a situation where they're motivated. They're kind of chasing. It's like a, a dog chasing a rabbit. I don't know. You know, like it's, it's inherent in the situation that you've built. Whereas in other programs, there isn't enough, are enough kids. There isn't enough of a culture of a history. And, and it's almost like sometimes a coach is burdened with having to motivate, having to coach, having to socialize, having to, you know, where I think you've got enough of a, momentum people just get sucked in and move forward and it's all positive do you know what i mean yeah it's funny yeah maybe um, i mean I, it was it's for you for guys looking outside in because you know i mean i'm in the forest right so can i see the trees you yeah. know and so but um you know we we have well, let me just you know sort of share a a, a reference point for people we have um 30 annually between 30 and 35 kids in what's called our comp team. That's for you for you six, not you 14s, you 16s and you 18s, typically high school age kids. Right. And of those 35 kids, you can have some kids that are excelling in cross country ski racing, either at a national level or even international. Level. I mean, last year, I mean, my God, Sydney and Johnny, all having said that they were generational athletes, right? We, we don't get that, come along very often but we've had our fair share of good kids on our program but having said that we have 34 35 kids this year on our team we have a cadre within that group or a cohort in that group that keep their training logs that you know the we talk to all the time about training planning that are working really hard they're very diligent in their efforts and they are training not only just because they love the ski sport, but they have some longer range goals, right? Then we have a big middle where we have uh, a bunch of kids who really like skiing. They're good athletes. They'll train. At times, they'll train really well. Other times, they may be involved in other sports. And uh, sometimes they're keeping training logs. Sometimes they're not. But they, when they're present and they're engaged with the team, they're really engaged. And they're awesome kids. Now, some of them may not ski at all after you know, they may ski recreationally after their high school ski racing experience, but they may not continue in ski racing like at universities or whatnot. But then we have this really other weird thing where I shouldn't say weird, but different where we have like annually every year between four and six or eight kids who in our high school competitive program who hardly race. Hmm. Right. They'll race like maybe just the boulder or they'll do a couple races a year they don't go to junior qualifiers but they come to practice all the time they're always training they're just and they're just in our program they're every bit as much an important cog in our program as the kid who's winning a race at junior nationals right people have said to me they go well why don't you offer a recreational program and i go well tell me what that looks like because it, if you're saying recreation means not trying, well, then I'm not interested in that because we're trying to help kids grow into people who, like I said, relish challenge and are willing to 
push themselves out there a little bit. And so if recreation means I stand around every once in a while when I decide to sort of get motivated to go skiing and then I just sort of ski for a little bit and then I go home, I guess that's okay. It is okay, right? I am going to say that's okay. But we have kids on our team who like literally never race or they will race once or twice. Yet I have never said to them, you're not capable of doing the same work that a kid that's meddling at junior nationals isn't, you know, is doing. Yeah, of course you can come to practice and you can go for two hour runs and you can do intervals. You can do all those same things that you maybe aren't competitively oriented is an entirely separate question, right? Because if you're trying to help people find in themselves the, the personal resiliency, the word grit's been overused, but maybe grit, um, uh, uh, there, you know, there's been a lot of talk for a long time about growth mindset, right? Not having the focus be on the result, but instead on the process, right? Then it really, the, the whole competition thing is sort of a separate issue, right? And so, so if people engage with our team here locally, um, a lot of times it's not because that they're lying, they're trying to go get a shiny medal, right? It's because they uh, want to be involved in the culture and the, uh, you know, the, the day-to-day, um, I don't know if the word is lessons, but the day-to-day growth that occurs when you just decide I'm singularly going to get involved with something. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to change who I am. I'm going to make goals. I'm going to try hard. And that's going to lead me somewhere that's going to help me maybe be better prepared for life in the future. Sorry. It's a long-winded answer. No, I, mean, I, I see that, and I think that as for juniors, but also, for example, Muffy Ritz with her advanced program says the same thing. The most Absolutely. Her, the most fun thing for her about coaching is showing people how they can expand their expectations or, or their limits that they self-imposed among themselves. Yeah. So it's, it's inspiring to, to do things you never thought you were capable of doing and then to build on it. And that's yeah. what you're in the business of, right? Yeah, that's what it is. And I mean, in, in our particular community, cross-country skiing is a place that works. It's, it's a sport that works really here, well here. It doesn't work in Burley. Not that the kids in Burley, Idaho, aren't every bit, we're, you know, invested and willing to do those kind of things. It just doesn't snow there. Right. <laughs> so, so and, just because, and because I happen to love cross-country skiing, and I think it's a really cool thing, and we have everything we need here to run a great program, and engage a lot of kids. Now, I will make a point. Like, we have programming at the elementary age um, uh, called our Devo team, and then we have our middle school program, and then we have our high school program, and we also have a, you know, post-grad program, and their post-grad programming is always sort of small in the United States because mo- most kids go to college right after high school, and but yeah, this post-grad program, and then we have our goal team, but our younger programs We've determined that like the cap size for those programs, depending on where the program is being located or whatever, is like 60 kids per each of these different programs, Devo North, Devo South, whatnot. And there we're capped out, right? We have, we've gotten to, you know, we've, we've decided like, okay, like in this youth program X, we can effectively deliver meaningful, effective program to 
to like a maximum of 60 kids in this age group, right? And we're capped out. So, so I, you know, we're trying to figure out now how to sort of retool the program to allow even more kids to engage with the sport. But mark my words, these parents are not signing their kids up because they have Olympic aspirations. That's not what we're doing here. Right. I mean, I don't get me wrong. Yeah, I am stoked. I, I mean, I am stoked. I am as competitive as the next person on race day. Right. But, but we've got to keep the order right. If that makes sense, in my opinion, at least that's what works for us. Sure. So when people hear the Nordic people hear Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation or Sun Valley Ski Team, whatever, they think Rick Capala. What they don't necessarily uh, give credit to is you've got a whole cadre of coaches, any one of which could be a fantastic head coach, a successful head coach in any number of programs. And you're talking about, you know, Devo teams, postgraduate, undergraduate, junior, this and that. Right. Do you want to you want to throw a bone to some of your outstanding coaches like <laughs> Ashley and Marion? Oh yeah, I mean the the suggestion that um, this is a one man show is just laughable. In fact, sometimes I got to remember to get the hell out of the way. In fact, probably more often than not, I would imagine. You know, it's a it's a little bit different, right? Because it has uh, grown over time. When I first started here, uh, my co coach with the comp team was Allison Kiesel who recently, um, uh, Allison Owen Bradley, uh, she recently was just inducted to the U.S. Ski Hall of Fame. She won the first ever Women's World Cup, you know, way back when in Telemark. And I learned so much from Allison uh, that I I could write a book about what I learned from Allison. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, and then there were like a couple of younger coaches for the younger kids, a guy named Dave Bingham, who is like rock climbing extraordinaire, and then another guy who is this really gentle soul who had this uh, great view of life, a guy named Dave Wheelock. Well, there were just four of us then. We have 35 coaches now on staff. So, and and the, the, the a lot of the lead coaching positions, in fact, I would say three, three out of the five, no, four out of the five lead, four out of the, excuse me, four out of the six, head coach positions in our program have been filled with alumni. So Ashley McQueen, now her maiden name is Knox, is the head coach for the comp team. And I coach with Ashley. She tells me what to do. I try to, you know, do what I'm told. Uh, Sometimes it's harder. (laughs) But Ashley is an alumni of our program. Martha Pendle grew up with, she was a ninth grader on our team when I first took over the reins here. And she uh, was from a skiing family there was a bunch of them that all cross-country ski races. Our Devo coach, one of our Devo co- head coaches, Emily Williams was a Devo. I mean, a Devo through comp team skier for us and is now leading Devo South. And then a Kelly uh, Sanat, Mike's Sanat's, people remember Mike from racing, and they may remember Kelly, but she grew up with our program as well. And she's the prep team, the middle school coach, while also being uh, the assistant program director with me. Right. Then we have Paul Smith on PG and Chris Mallory, who we, we stole Paul Smith from Jackson. Uh, thank you very much, Jackson. And then um, we uh, have had Chris Mallory in a number of different roles with our program. He actually came here from post UNH skiing career and was a Devo coach for us to begin with. And then a comp team coach. He skied, he coached for UVM, I should say. 
and then he's been leading our gold team. And then, you know, the, the great thing about all of these coaches is that they're all fully invested in sort of the, the ethos, if you will, of our program. And, you know, it's gotten to the point now with my role here is, you know, I really believe in the servant style of leadership for, you know, coaching. And that is, is me trying to figure out what each of these coaches need to be successful and trying to give them what they need so they can run their programs as effectively as possible. And then we have a bunch of assistant coaches, even with each of those programs. So we couldn't do that and uh, that we couldn't have the program we have without people being invested and also empowered to take their programs and run with them. And they do it. And we're really fortunate in that regard. And that's sort of true of our Alpine team as well. We have a really good blend on all of our programs of alumni who are still, who are coaching, stayed in coaching, came back to coaching, as well as some outside expertise that's come in as well. And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, definitely not a one-man show, the exact opposite of that. Thanks. Um, so here's uh, something that I think is kind of a challenge for skiing in the United States to a point. Um, the Midwest is what I would call a talent drain. They have lots of talented juniors who then go to college. And when they finish college and they're interested in pursuing excellence in skiing, they go to a different part of the country because the Midwest doesn't have an elite program. Um, well, they do have some elite programs that are just college-based. Right? Yeah, I meant, so I meant they, for, yeah. like, comparable to your gold program. Right. So, yeah, NMU, of course, is a great program. Tech, yeah, I'm talking postgraduate for, you go to college, you graduate from college, and then where do you go? And generally, they leave the Midwest, and they go to Sun Valley, they go to Stratton, they go to APU, they go to mm -hmm. Green Team, you know, maybe maybe recently BSF as well with Andy there. Um Kevin Bolger is an example of a Midwesterner who's on, been on the U.S. ski team for years, grew up in Wisconsin, went to college and uh, ended up in Sun Valley ever since, and he's been a regular in the U.S. ski team. He was a postgrad with us uh, as well, Kevin yeah. was, for two years before I went to Utah. So yeah. your question? Yeah, so my, my comment or question is, the effect is that the Midwest junior racers have very little opportunity to chase around elite skiers as well, to be men as, well as to be mentored by them which I think is a challenge for the Midwest. I know that some of your juniors have been top racers regardless of age, for example, Sydney and Johnny last year, but do you find that your juniors benefit from being around the gold team and what kind of interaction do they have? Yeah, okay, so one of the concepts that we have really uh, subscribed to here was what we call uh, um, the complete ecosystem, right? And so, the complete ecosystem when it comes to cross-country skiing is having scads of little kids out skiing. Middle schoolers, now remember, middle schoolers are a unique foreign species. They were dropped here by aliens, and who the hell knows what's going on with, with kids in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. They are, they are nuts, right? They're awesome nuts, but they are nuts. So you have middle schoolers, then you have high schoolers, and even high schoolers, you, like I was alluding to before, they're a very mixed bag. We have postgrads, and then we have a bunch of masters and recreational skiers in our valley. And the gold team serves a very important role in that they 
they complete the ecosystem, if you will, right? And so uh, we've been so fortunate because, you know, we'll go to the West Yellowstone training camp, right? And we, ha- we set up a dining hall and our middle school kids are coming in for an abbreviated, albeit, you know, three or four day camp. And then our high school kids are there and they're rubbing shoulders all week long with Kevin Bolger in the past, guys like Chris Cook out of the Midwest, another uh, Rhinelander boy, I believe. Yep. Um, you know, uh, you gold teamers like Nicole DeYoung out of Anchorage, um, you know, Mike Sinat, homegrown guys like Mike Sinat, Katie uh, Feltman, you know, and Kevin and, and so forth. And so what, without even saying anything, when you have that level of skier present in your community, right, it, um, it immediately, without you saying anything, says this is possible, right? We have, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little love towards uh, a couple of skiers that we have right now um, on our gold team uh, named Anna Kalandis and um, Katie Feltman. And you, I'm sure, remember these guys. They were good skiers for us. Were they the top of the podium in Inner Mountain when they were skiing? No. They were good, but it wasn't like they just steamrolled the competition, right? They go to Middlebury. They continue growing under the tutelage of, you know, really, really good coaches like Andrew Johnson and Kate Barton. And then they come back and they were a few of the kids that were able, that had decided they were continuing to grow to see how far they could go in the sport. And that doesn't happen, in my opinion, if they didn't evolve in their junior years, shoulder to shoulder with the gold team being present next to them, showing that this was possible. I mean, when I look, when I, the other day we ran treadmill sessions, you know, on our treadmill and I, and, um, and I was, you know, conducting the session and driving the controls on the treadmill, watching Annika and then Katie ski, as well as other of our, our other good skiers like Peter Holmes and, you know, Sam Wood and those guys. Um, I, I was in awe, like to think about where they were as little kids, right, skiing. Yeah. And now here they are eight years later. And that's where I made that comment earlier. Like when you're in high school, you really, you, you're on a path where you may begin to understand what your capacities are, but you really can't yet, right? And so we're lucky because, again, our town is small enough that a, a high-end, you know, high-achieving program like the Gold Team has transform- transformative power within the community uh, just by virtue of being there. So. Right? A question I have then is, what is the interaction between the gold team and the comp team? Do they well, the workouts goal, together? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you, but it's, we don't just leave it with the comp team. So the comp team will do some workouts occasionally, like if we're doing a hill climb time trial, some workouts lend themselves to being engaged because, um, because you know, if you're saying we're going to go, you know, let's say you got Annika, Katie, and Sarah Goldberg are going to go for a double pull. Well, there's like two of our junior girls that can hang on to them in a double pull workout. So then they're just gone. So is that very instructive? No, all the juniors go. It's like, well, they just kick my ass, right? So <laughs> so it's like, what did you learn? I don't know if you learned anything there. So what they'll do, though, is like if we're doing a sprint, uh, a sprint sim where we have everybody together, that's where it's really helpful, right? Because uh, and even for guys like Johnny, who are very, very 
good international juniors. You know, Johnny's a distance skier. Putting him into a workout, uh, and Sydney for that matter, although Sydney's got pretty good sprint capacity too, but putting them in a sprint workout with Kevin Bulger and Peter Holmes, oh my God. Now, and to Stratton's credit, to APU's credit, you know, Craftsbury, they're doing the same thing, mm -hmm. right? And that's where having this complete ecosystem is really, really important. Um, and if we circle back to the Midwest, I know the guys um, at Lopet Racing are really, really trying to figure out how to activate a senior program. And mark my words, if they can unlock the key, you know, oh, uh, and figure out how to activate a senior program in Minneapolis, in the greater Minneapolis area, look out. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they have put all this facility infrastructure support into uh, Theater Worth. Uh, they're going to have kick-ass. So they do have great snowmaking. Oh, yeah. They have a number of snowmaking facilities that are around the uh, Twin Cities. There is, it's like, you know, I don't know what the guy, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what the guys at Stratton think or APU and stuff, but if that sleeping tiger gets, sleeping bear gets awoken, holy majoli. Those guys, it's it's gonna be nuts how good they could be. If if I look at the last, you know, the history of U.S. results, we kind of, you know, obviously in the mid eight, early '80s, we did really well, and then it kind of went up and down generationally. But this last while, I think um, things have gone up on a pretty steady trajectory. If you look at the juniors and so on, and to, from my perspective, and I want to hear your perspective, it seems like. Okay, I'm, I'm sure we benefited from better doping testing, but outside of that, that's not what I want to talk about. It, <clears throat> it seems to me the biggest change is when the U.S. scheme, USSA decided to go to a club-based model as compared to you have junior teams, you go to college, and then the good ones will take them. You know, and they try to get them to move to Park City and all that stuff. It seems to me when the U.S. ski team, USSA started supporting the club-based model, as a nation, we got a lot better at skiing and we're continually getting better and better at skiing. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. But I, it's a chicken, chicken and egg story. You know, like did U.S. skiing support the club model or did they basically just ensure that they weren't not supporting it, right? Mm -hmm. If there's another way of saying it. And so, you know, we, we, I think, underestimate how long it takes to really build the kind of um, so cultural and social infrastructure in all of these communities to really have gotten the sport where it is now. And I'm just going to try to, you know, compare. So Scandinavia, some guy, whatever it is, 2000 years ago, carved a skier on a rock face somewhere in Northern Norway. Right. Right. So they had 2000 year head start on us. Right. You know, our country didn't come into, uh, you know, being until, you know, the late 1700s. Then we were primarily an agrarian country for the next 150 years. And then finally, we got wealthy enough generally, and there's great wealth disparity in our country still. So there's a whole secondary question about that. But, you know, the, the country became crazy for Cocoa Puffs for, for athletics of all shapes and forms as the country became a little more affluent, you know, baseball back in the turn of the century and then football and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, cross-country skiing only showed up really, other than in a small few pockets in New England, 
not really until the 70s. I mean, that's when, you know, track had that national marketing campaign, which was said, you know, if you can walk, you can cross country ski. Actually, what it should have said, if you could walk, you can walk on your cross country skis. But that's another, that's another topic. But, you know, so when I think about like uh, cross country skiing, it, of course, it's taken this long. You know, it was hard for a while because of the unrepentant, pervasive doping that was going on in the 90s. Just, it was, I, I, I mean, people don't want to talk about it. I get it. There's no point in spending a bunch of hand-wringing moments over it. But it was ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't just cross-country skiing. It was professional endurance sports across the board. Swimming, biking, running. It was everywhere, right? And we were paying a price in terms of competitive results. Um, the lost generation of Nash, Husaby, Bowden Steiner, uh, uh, Justin, you know, those guys were, the eye test was they were way better than what their results were showing. They were training professionally under the tutelage of people like Torbjorn Carlson, right? They were legitimately trying really hard, very professionally, and they were still getting worked, right? Now, now what's happened, though, is because cross-country skiing, I think, has all these very attractive um, sort of values associated with it, right? It just was some place over the last 20 years or 30 years where parents said, hey, you know, if I'm in Steamboat, I'm looking for a great program for my kid to be involved in, or Bozeman, or Jackson, or, you know, Duluth, or wherever, not because necessarily I just want them to go to the Olympics, in fact, rare, rarely so, because I just want a great place for a thing for my kid to do, right, in these winter communities, winter, you know, communities with winter. And so it's just taken us as long as it's taken for us to catch up. There's been a few lucky things that have worked to our advantage. Um, we finally settled down at the national team level leadership, and we just said, we found a few guys and women who are running that program and let's just roll with them. And we haven't had this never ending churn in terms of leadership. And, you know, I can't give enough credit to people like, you know, Grover, Chris Grover and Matt Whitcomb for above all else being calm, steady influences working forward. Right. And, you know, I give a lot of credit to Bodensteiner as well for, for him, you know, envisioning originally another place for skiing to go within the larger, you know, challenges within the governing body, you know, and so, you know, eventually the job became so much more than just cross-country skiing for Luke, but, but we just, we brought a level of professionalism finally to the the game and it's starting to pay off that combined with a lot of kids cross-country skiing and it's just working. So, um, I think we're just going to get better and better. I, I, I'm really, really, I mean, I go to JN's now, Ian, and I look at the, the, the list and it's not because I can't remember, right? I'm not there yet, right? I'm not at that, I'm not that guy. And I'm going like, what the hell is this club? Where did this club come from? Yeah. Who's, who's this club, right? It used to be like in the early nineties, it'd be like Sverry and I just going at it. <laughs> It was very called all. Okay, Stratton, you kicked our ass this year, and then 
next year we'd kick Stratton's ass. Occasionally somebody would show up from Burke and do pretty well or Green Mountain Valley School. But there weren't, like, when I first started in, okay, here's a frame of reference. I know I'm going off right now, okay? <laughs> when I first started in Sun Valley in 87, I was the only coach employed year-round in Intermountain to coach year-round. Right now, every single club in our division has a coach on staff working year-round coaching athletes. Tuna, Boise, McCall, Sun Valley, Bozeman, Jackson, uh, Glacier, two programs in Bozeman. I mean, Park come City. on. Park City. Well, Park City, Tuna, uh, Soldier Hollow, right? I mean, and that is happening everywhere. In When I first started coaching in 87 here, I mean, literally, I think there were maybe just two or three coaches that were supervising training, you know, even more, like even nine months a year. That's so how it was with Sperry, too. When Sperry started, he was the first one, basically. Yes, yes, yeah. right? Yeah. And, so, and so it's not so much that, that you, that what's going on is that suddenly we're all that much smarter, right? Or we're suddenly, you know, that much better, but maybe we are right, in terms of best practices and trying to do a good job as a coach, um, bring the best version of yourself more often to practice, you know, matters, right, but more people are trying harder and doing a good job just collectively, right, and so I don't think it can help but, but drive performance. Now, you know, we're always going to be running up against, you know, whatever the insane number is of X million number of skiers in Russia, right, right who are clawing up through an economic system to just try to get a chance to ski race and make some money and go to davos right because that's a nice place to beat the hell out of it beats the hell out of eastern siberia right then you've got places where cross-country skiing like norway sweden finland is so ingrained into their culture that you know they're getting the best of all their athletes and they have they're in the small enough realm of things because they're not competing against like sports like football that suck all the oxygen out of the room. You know, those are their national level sports, but yeah. yeah, it's changed and it's changed for the better. It's awesome. Sorry. <laughs> oh no, this has been great. <clears throat> in fact, I, in preparing for this, I emailed a number of your former athletes asking them for thoughts on you as a coach and on the program and so on. And I heard from most of them and I, I asked a follow-up question, but pretty much all of them said how remarkable you are in terms of preparing them for life and keeping things fun in your famous talks, pre-race talks, or I think we just experienced one, like uh, starting in Scandinavia when people were carving wooden skis, you know, and that's why I was laughing because, um, you know, I don't need to talk about it. You just, you just gave the example, which is beautiful and, and fun to listen to. Um, but one thing that came up consistently from these people that I asked, I'm not going to read, read them all because it'll take 20 minutes, but um, basically your massive emphasis on having fun, enjoying yourself, and not taking things too seriously, while at the same time, I'm interjecting this, they always said it was, it was on enjoying things and not taking things too seriously, but from my perspective, 
I mean, when you go to a race and when you're training, your athletes are training hard, they're strong, they ski well, they're savvy, they're all race savvy. You know, they've, they've been through a preparation process that has consequences. The consequences are they're ready to race. But during that process, obviously they're having a ball and you're keeping them from feeling a high pressure situation as best as you can and keeping things fun. And so I wanted to see if you could address that balance between consequential training and preparation and enjoying yourself and having fun and not taking things too seriously. Cause you're obviously masterful at that. Yeah. Um, maybe I am, uh, maybe I'm not, or, you know, maybe I'm some days on balance, I'm better at it. I don't know. But I think, I think one of the things that coaches really need to do, and this is sort of, I'll come at it tangentially a little bit here. One of the things that all coaches need to do is they need to ask themselves the question, why am I coaching? Is it so I can put a bunch of shiny things on my shelf behind my desk? I hang a bunch of plaques on the walls. What informs you as a coach, right? For me, when I was growing up in athletics, you know, I was this very non-athletic middle schooler, very unsure of myself in retrospect, but I got welcomed into a number of different athletic groups where they just said, oh, <laughs> short little chubby kid, you're here, sweet. Let's go, let's go be an athlete together, right? Uh, the community of people that I was involved in with wrestling, they were, I mean, we had a really good program led by a really good coach, right? And we trained really hard. I mean, really hard. I mean, wrestlers are whack, yeah. right? They're, they're like, you know, they're like the least cool kids in the school. You think cross country skiers are the nerds at school? Then there's like a whole nother step of the other most uncool kids at school, right? And so I was made to feel welcome. And our goal with our program is to make sure every kid feels seen in our program, right? So if you give value to every individual through your obvious actions and support of them as individuals, then you free the lane for when you, they have trust, right? So then you can say to them, hey, we're doing, you know, six by six minutes hard running intervals and i know you can do these right you have developed a a space for a kid to not prejudge themselves or feel that they're pre being prejudged right and um and when you know we say to our kids all the time living and dying by the result board is a miserable existence so don't do it if we can't remember the results hardly from last year, why should you be fixated on those things, right? A race is done. It's done. It's over, right? If you're not happy, if you're not happy with how a race turned out, then do something about it, right? But make no mistake, right? You're going to lose way more ski races than you ever win, even if you're the best skier in the world. Right. So so you better understand why you're doing the sport. And for most kids, the reality about why they're doing the sport is they have a sense. They feel a sense of community with like minded individuals who enjoy just the fun 
of going out there and challenging themselves we're really lucky in cross-country skiing because the whole outdoors is our gym I right all the time, nature's gym <laughs> yeah i mean we, i mean what okay so what's the worst thing that happened in practice today you got to go for a run for two hours around this beautiful mountain trail that's the worst thing that happened <laughs> right so you know and it, and what's the worst thing that happens at bad across the ski race you got a good workout i mean that's i mean we're not fighting world hunger here right we're just trying to give people a tool set right put enough bag enough clubs in their bag that they can go out you know, post skiing or transferred to other things while they're skiing that they can help them. You know, we, we do a lot of wacky stuff and I'm, well, I know we're not alone in doing this, but like this Saturday, we have an event coming up called save the baby King. Have you heard about this one, Ian? Yeah, this is one of the things I <laughs> want to ask you about. So before you talk about it, let me ask a question. Um, Mary Rose said one of the things that, that, I, that she thinks is a little unique about your coaching style is not only have you built a culture of working hard, having fun, and being a good person by providing experience to the athletes that will stay with them for a lifetime, but she says you create situations where the athletes are working their butts off without realizing it. And, and one example of this is the Save the Baby King or also the Hague Glacier trip. These traditions, these epic point-to-point -point adventure traditions that you've built in, which become their own kind of micro- culture and people get excited about it for years so could you please talk about that yeah yeah well again we live in a place where it's really maybe a little easier to do this but we have we dreamed up we've been doing this this workout for like 25 years now and it's a standalone day like some kids say this is the biggest day of the year right yeah. <laughs> and these are the same kids that are trying to go to world juniors right so they say the baby king is a <laughs> very loose reenactment of the Birkebeiner spearing it away young King Hulken from the invading Baglers from Denmark to, you know, go save, you know, that was the inspiration for the, the Birkebeiner ski race. Right. And so the baby King, King Hulken is we give each, we break the team up of the, you know, like the 35 kids in there in the high school program. We break them up into team squads of like five or six kids. That'll be like guys and gals, young and old. Right. So it's a real team building deal. Right. And so it's like an, what's you know, everybody knows a show like The Amazing Race. Right. Where they're given a set of challenges. Right. And so the event lasts about three or four hours, depending on how long people get lost for. And they're each team is given a baby, which is a 25 pound weight disc. And everybody in their back has a back a backpack. Right. And they've all been instructed to bring things like duct tape you know, 20 meters of rope, fire starter, um, you know, all kinds of things like that. And then they get sent off on this point-to-point -point adventure race through the mountains that in could include having to build spears and throw them at fake reindeer. And while they're also carrying, a, you know, a 40-inch truck tire, right? Uh, and, and so, and they never know what's going to happen, right? They start the 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 a day the save the baby king day and they all they've been told is arrive at lake creek at 10 have your running shoes some years will be roller skiing some years will be mountain biking but they have to bring their stuff right and then it starts right and they have no idea what it's going to be so what the purpose of this is is 
to get kids comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Both physically as well as psychologically, right? So, so, so by doing that, you create in them a sense of like once they've survived. I mean, we have kids that have never gone to JNs who have always been on the podium at Save the Baby King. And it is a bragging right. They're like, they're like, I've never not been on the podium at Save the Baby King. Right. Are they, this is a team event. How many people on a team? Uh, like five or six. It depends on just how we break it up. And, and there are the usually like, we, the coaches get together and we purposely, we know the personalities mm. and strengths and weaknesses. Like you remember a guy that skied for us, uh, Max Durchie. He's now a biathlete. He's one of the guys that rode me, but yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, Max, there is a fabled, fabled version of Save the Baby King. Because well, Max, if you remember, was had a career as a pro bike racer in Europe. I mean, the dude was like, is legit, right? Yeah. I mean, athletically, and he's just like an awesome human being. But there was a stage where the final stage was like this, 10 miles or 12 miles of riding out a dirt road that they ended on up at way in the hell in the back of nowhere. And two of the younger girls, Sloan Story and Emily Williams, who Sloan went on to ski for Utah and went to the World Juniors a number of years. And Emily uh, is turning, it has turned into this really high level backcountry mountain runner. And she's one of our head coaches now, Sloan coaches for us as well. Anyway, Max tied a piece of the rope because they had always been asking me like, why do we have the rope? And I was like, I don't know. You might need it. Right. Be creative. Think. Right. So these two girls, they were like 14 years old. Max is 17, you know, strong man. And these two poor girls were just blown out. They were struggling. Right. And Max took, he goes, finally goes, aha. And he ties the rope to one of their, you know, handlebar posts takes it up, loops it around his seat post, and then ties it to the other one front and then tows them 10 miles, like right? A team, team. Yeah, yeah, like a tractor trailer. And basically they completed it because they worked together as a team and, and they took care of each other. And um, it was hard. I mean, I mean, Emily and Sloan still sort of hate me for that particular version because it ended up being a lot of river crossings in thigh deep November cold water and carrying logs over mountains and stuff like that. But anyway, so yeah, so that's Save the Baby King. It happens this, uh, and there's weird things too that happen. And like sometimes there'll be like a ad hoc dance competition. Uh, one time they had to climb a mountain as one of their stages around town and they found me up there in like a Galdolf, I can't remember the guy's name from Lord of, Lord of the, the Rings. Game Lord of the Rings. And they had to beat me in a game of speed checkers <laughs> before they could get the clue to go to the next thing. Right. And and the one last thing is that if you podium, you get one of those kitschy animal shirts from the curio shop in West Yellowstone when we go there for the training camp. Uh -huh. And they have like the kids that are on the Nordic team, they wear their animal shirts to school, which only further perpetuates the nerddom that they're engaged in. But anyway, so that's what that is. And so we, we do a lot of that, but it's also the place where we live lends itself to it. Right. So we tried to do that was like, yeah, this is training, but it's also adventure.
Max, by the way, was he said the greatest thing that ever happened to him, and this is a guy who's pro bike racer, he's traveled the US biathlon team and raced. Greatest thing that ever happened to him was being in the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation program and being coached by you. Well, that's really nice. I sort of feel the, the same way about Max. One of the greatest things that ever happened for the foundation is Max found his way to our program. So yeah. we've, we've got bibs on the wall for Max from, uh, and bike numbers and stuff from all kinds of adventures. I mean, when he was racing pro overseas, Ian, man, it was, I was so stoked, you know, as a cyclist. I mean, because, you know, endurance sport is somewhat endurance sport, yeah. right? Right. And, and I learned subsequently after Max left junior ski racing for a while, uh, he was really, really open and shared a lot about the training protocols and, and the difficulties associated with pro professional cycling, which I don't want to say makes cross-country skiing look soft because it's not, but that is a whole nother level of grind. That's like, a tough sport. Oh, holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. So. Let's change the subject a bit. Um, I want to ask you, you've seen Americans come from no chance whatsoever in international racing to multiple athletes making the red group to having a good chance to medal, but not believing it, to finally believing it, and then having multiple athletes make the podium regularly. Andy, Simi, Keegan, Caitlin, Liz, Ida, Sophie, Sadie. Julia, Sadie. Yeah, so, you know, lots, yeah. lots of success. We are now in a very good place as a country, especially with our world junior teams being one of, if not the most dominant in the world the past two years. Can you please comment on how exciting this is for now and for the future? Well, yeah, it's really exciting. I think um, in the, uh, obviously it would have to be, um, but you know, it always takes a trailblazer and you know, we, we lost the thread between Koki getting a medal in 76 and then you know, the dark period before Keegan. And, you know, uh, there had, you know, we had to have a little bit of serendipity working for us. Uh, I don't know that we write exactly the same script without Keegan, you know, being ready to excel in sprint racing, where maybe uh, the, the playing field was a little more level, if you will, physiologically. Right. Because because it's a, you know, a power anaerobic version of the sport, you know, more heavily weighted towards power and anaerobics um, as opposed to pure aerobic, which could be substitute, which could be subject to manipulation. Right. Yeah. So Keaton comes along and basically shows the way. I also think that um, in a weird way. Uh, technology has just really well, uh, and by that I mean like streaming video. Totally agree. Right. I mean, it used to be like, and I, I mean, you know, Sperry and I would talk about this as well as other coaches, Stan, where we'd be like, we'd do anything to get our hands on a videotape from world championships the previous year, right? right? then you're watching it and you're trying to get the kids to watch it and you're trying to learn and what are we seeing right because unless you went overseas to race occasionally or coach you know and then when you went there it was jaw dropping right you were like holy crap these guys are really fast right and then and then streaming you know whatever it is now six years ago and i'll come back 
walk them to practice and I'll say to our kids, hey, did you see? And they're like, yeah, we already saw it. Right. And so the power of that technology to engage kids everywhere across the country with what the sport really looks like now. Yeah. I mean, we had, and this is, I think every coach would agree with this. Johannes Klebo came along and he started that running, you know, he, lifting heels, right. And just sprinting. We had kids mimicking that within days. Right. Um, the first time we saw it on TV. Right. So it's really exciting to see that uh, these connections have been made between you know, a burgeoning and growing junior uh, programming across the country, and then linking that with now growing success at the world junior level. And then, you know, but mark my words, it's still, you know, this group of juniors that we've had come through from all the way back when that, that group of gals won the medal at Soho at World Juniors a few years ago to now a steady drumbeat of picking up medals at World Juniors and the relays particularly uh, have been, you know, it like portends a good future, but it's not automatic. Uh, that's for sure. It is still a big challenge to make the jump from World Juniors and U23s to the World Cup. So I'm, I think we're all optimistic that we have some kids in the pipeline more so, but if I was gonna say we had one thing going for us is that you have some smaller nations like Germany and France who by right, we probably should be at least competitive with them all the time. And if not often pass them just on sheer numbers alone. We have more kids skiing than France has, right? Uh, and maybe I think more than Germany as well. Yet those guys are usually occupying that space somewhere between like three, four-ish and, you know, six, seven-ish, right, on the nation's Nordic Cup, which is a good way, I think, to, you know, when they add up all the World Cup points for a nation in a season, it's a really good metric to look at, right? And the other metric I think that's really good to look at is how many different athletes are scoring World Cup points, right? right? Those are the two really big metrics. And you you don't have to look any farther than Canada to see that success at the international level can be really hard to sustain if you don't have a big enough base because they have everything they need in many communities in Canada to grow cross country skiers, right? Yeah. You know, in places like Mount St. Anne and Canmore, but they don't have that many. Right. And so they'll have this, these, these spikes where they'll have amazing success and then they'll go quiet again. Right. We hopefully can keep a base or floor of competitive excellence at the world cup level where we always have some kids involved at, at the, at the fast end of the peloton, but it's still really hard to make the jump. You know, you don't have, you know, Kevin Bolger is an amazingly talented athlete, right? And that guy is a specimen. It is still a dogfight in the men's sprint field on the World Cup level. And I look at how hard Kevin is training, as well as all these other seniors, and I go like, it is not automatic. That is for damn sure. Yeah. And so, but I am excited. I think, I think, you know, obviously, 
guys like Gus Schumacher and Jaeger, um, you know, Benny Ogden, you know, on the girls' side, Novi, you know, Sydney, you know, Kendall, there is talent in the pipeline, but it is a long way between there and the World Cup. And we have to maintain the support systems that have got us to this point so that those athletes can continue to flourish in their path because, you know, it's you fall off the path it's really hard to catch back up again you know this as well as anybody so i don't mean to be sounding like it's too hard to do because we can do it let me ask you a related question you brought up some of the most talented juniors or at least recently most successful juniors it seems to me that they're not that different in many ways compared to juniors 10 15 years ago that we've had except to me just from my perspective Maybe the biggest difference between them and 10, 15 years ago is they're damn strong. Our juniors are senior, like elite senior strong. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, they might have been fit in terms of uh, aerobic capacity and so on, but they didn't have the explosive power that our current crop of like Ben Ogden and Luke Yeager and Gus and Sydney, they're they're wicked strong. Not strong we've ever had. Do you think this is a result of training – longer earlier you know more specific strength training earlier or what do you think is going on with that because we've got some well, success there yeah um i well i think it's important to ask that question and understand what's happening in other sports across the um the athletic spectrum as well like like i'm a bit of a baseball nerd and um we're we're seeing in baseball i read a lot of about stuff about player development uh, because in sports like baseball where there's a lot of money right most program most teams are willing to spend a lot of resource on player development and so this is players that are aged like 18 to 24 before they maybe get to the to the bigs and it's what's happening now in a lot of pro sports is the age at which young athletes are having developed the capacities to compete at the elite level in a given sport is going down, right? And that is because the professionalism, the comprehensive nature of the the training methodologies and the support systems have improved at a lower level and not a lower level, but at a younger level, right? So I'm not necessarily talking about like uh, narrowing yourself down to one sport super early, but rather the training with, Methods have been have improved. We're not right. talking about specialization. We're talking about no, no. better training right. programs, smarter across, doing things. Across all, yeah, across all sports. That's right? an important distinction, though. Right, it's an important distinction. So it's not that I'm saying that people are specializing younger. It's that that uh, talented athletes are getting coached in all sports at a higher level earlier, exactly. which means that they're better prepared. Earlier, it used to be suggested that um, you didn't hit your peak until you were 28 or 29 years old, like as a male in cross-country ski racing. And for some athletes, that's still their trajectory. But there are many, 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 many athletes that are now making the jump from world junior competitions or U23s into seniors and being, you know, uh, successful early, right? Um, And... You know, you, you see it maybe a little bit more on the women's side than the guy's side, just because biologically women can have a maturation uh, um, timeline 
that gets them closer to their adult form a little bit earlier in their chronological age rather than guys that could be a little bit later in terms of reaching adult form. But that's certainly what's been going on. And I think for the U.S. in particular, you have people like, you know, Gus, who's being trained by Jan Buran and as part of the Alaska Winter Stars program, and or Ben, Benny Ogden back east uh, with the Stratton guys, uh, and, and then, you know, UVM, and then, you know, all the crew, they're getting really quality directed training. You know, you look at Novi McCabe, her mom was an Olympian, right, and a, an amazing athlete in her right. And this goes back to what I was saying a little bit ago, right? It took us like 20 years of a bunch of kids going to junior nationals in the 70s or 80s to grow a culture of people that knew what cross-country skiing is about. But you also grew parents then, right? right? So you, you grew up cross-country ski racing at a time where, you know, there weren't, there weren't a bunch of you, right? And then now you have Pearl, right? Yeah. You and Auntie have Pearl, right? And so you're communicating to her not in any kind of stressful or pressure-filled way, but you're like, well, this is what being an athlete means, right? That's been going on for 60 years in Scandinavia. Somebody is skiing in Scandinavia on the national team now whose dad won the, you know, in Sweden, right? Who, whose, dad, whose dad's uncle won the Vassalopit or was third. I remember when Ola was third the Vassalopit. You remember Ola, and he's out back chopping wood right now, you know, and then their little girl's like, yeah, yeah, you know, and so, you know, there's all this culture that underlies what's going on. It just took us this long because it takes that long to have several generations come through the sport and the sport be, you know, them understand what it takes. This is what's really weird, Ian. I'm I'm fired up right now. And so... And so we run, a group of us run this camp called the National Youth 16 Development Camp. So it's the first sort of big project that kids can get selected for in the U.S. ski team sort of preparation camp pipeline thing. And it's very, very early. And it's just, it's as much an information camp as it is anything, right? Well, we've been running this thing for 10 years now, right? And we always ask one, a question. There's a number of things we always do at the camp, but 10 years ago, I would ask a question, whoever was running the camp, Kate Barton, would ask the question, how many kids' parents that are at this camp ski race? And like three hands would go up, right? We're like batting like 40% now, 50% where kids will rate. Now, is it a chicken or egg thing, right? But it wasn't the case way back when. Right? On, our own, on our own team here in Sun Valley, it used to be, when kids started in the Devo program or youth programming with me 30 years ago, their parents had no idea what cross-country skiing was, right? Better than half of the kids that are skiing now in our youth programs, their parents cross-country skied, right? That is, it seems like such a simple thing, but it's huge, right? It is huge, right? Two of the earliest best kids we had in our program were Jess Kiesel and Kaylin Kiesel, right? They're now adults. They're leading, you know, their professional lives and careers and stuff and doing what they do. But their dad was Rob Kiesel, who was Olympic coach and one of the innovators in Swix Wax, right? And Allison Kiesel. 
don't tell me that dinner table talk didn't say something along the lines once in a while, like, you know, Jess, if you clean the wax off your skis once in a while, they might be a little faster. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? So, oh, absolutely. so I think it's a combination of better preparation, better training. I can tell you now that like back in the day when I first started running this program, Abby Holt, Pat Casey, they, they were our sort of first wave of people who were really training a lot. And when I look at like what Sydney and, and this is to not in any way like reduce or minimize what those earlier skiers were doing. But I look at what these guys are doing now, almost without much push or hardly any push for me. And I go, whoa, whoa, there are, they, these kids are training in a way that is so much more effective and they're training more, but they're, they're training better. Mm-hmm. So, and they're, you know, but it's not just the training. It's all this stuff. That's a great, you know, great point. Yeah, basically, I mean, we're becoming Ogden, a ski nation. Basically, we're maturing yeah. to the point where we're becoming a ski nation. Yeah, well, Ben Ogden's dad, I, John. I raised against <laughs> him my whole life. Yes, he came here. I've forgotten this. He was here like in 1988 or 89. He had just showed up one summer as like a college age guy and said, Hey, can I hang around with you and Adam Haney? Right. And because Adam was here training in the summers because he was one of the guys that kept ski racing from our junior program. And he goes, can I train with you guys in the summer? And he would be here and sometimes we'd see him at a practice or whatever. But, and then it was like, and I actually forgot that. <laughs> and then it's like, Oh, Oh, Catherine Ogden is the daughter of John. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the family is like, Oh, why is this? Why is this? Why am I so slow to the, uptake on this one back in the 70s he won the bill coakley championships and i was like you know way back when some kid from massachusetts but when i've known him he was the big dog back then you know back in new england when we came to little teeny junior skiers right so that's what's gone on in our country this is occur this is occurring everywhere parents grew up skiing now they've had kids and we're finally at a point where enough of this has happened that it is having really strong cultural impacts in performance long term yeah, that's a great point. So I want to ask you a couple more questions, if you don't mind. Um, I'm going to eliminate a bunch of stuff I was going to ask you because uh, we're getting later, and I, want, I got a bunch of other stuff I want to ask. So can you give me – can you give some tips? I know when I'm, I'm, on the, I'm on the domestic, but especially the junior racing scene, I see people freezing – coaches freezing their butts off a lot of time. And, and athletes, there's a big difference between – athletes from for example the sun valley program other other programs your kids seem to all have big backpacks full of changes of clothes and other stuff can you talk about avoiding getting beat up by cold weather especially on race weekends what your recommendations might be and why well this sort of falls under the category of why make it harder than it needs to be right (laughs) it's like okay why are you wearing your skate park shoes in eight inches of slushy snow and freezing your butt off you know, why are you making it harder? It's already hard enough. We don't need to make it harder. So one of the things that, you know, we sort of have a, lit, a litany of things that we sort of really try to educate our kids about or a list of things. One of them, of course, is like, we can talk about, you know, we need to hand wash. Well, now in this day and age, especially, right? But, you know, with COVID, but we need to do all these self-care things because that are really important, like eating properly 
and in a timely way, a nutritionally dense food. We need to, you know, hydrate properly. We need to rest and sleep properly. We also need to take care of ourselves uh, when we're training. Like, did we go through this? It's like literally hitting my head with uh, in the head with this coffee cup. Like, and this. So please don't under make me suggest that our kids are somehow really good at this. So the other day we had a workout where we had been messaging, Ashley had been messaging the comp team kids ad infinitum, winter is coming, show up at practice with your full kit. It's a backpack that's got running tights, sweatpants, dry shirt, you know, windbreaker, gloves, hat, right? So we have a day, I'm not making this up Ian, it was a steady 20 mile an hour wind from the north, right? The ambient air temperature was 33. We have kids showing up with cutoff t-shirts and shorts for practice. And they're like, oh, it's so cold. I can't train, right? And of course, my eyes start bugging out of my head. And we're like, how many times do we have to tell you this? So we, though, take a lot of time to talk to our kids about like race day clothing preparation. And so we, we basically say, we, we, like, we sit them at practice and we go, here's your big bag. This is everything that should be in it, right? Clothes, dry socks, dry underlayer, da -da 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 -da, across the board, right? Um, you, you sell gloves, gloves, right? You know, all the stuff you need. If your hands are really cold, you need lobster claws, right? You, you, know, you know, one of the greatest inventions in the last 20 or 30 years are neck gaiters. <laughs> I mean, it's like I laugh, but like, they're like really good. In and I can't believe it. If I if I don't wear one and it's cold out, I feel like 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 someone's blowing the AC in my neck because I'm yeah because I'm so used to wearing one. If I don't wear one, I'm like oh my gosh, I can't believe right. I didn't wear one of these for the well, last you know forty years. What brings it full circle for our kids is we say, look, you have X amount of energy to expend, especially on a two race week race weekend. In Intermountain, we race Saturdays and Sundays, right? And so you have X amount of energy to expend, and if you are asking your body to, to divert critical calories, critical energy to keeping yourself warm in those moments before racing or after racing because you are unprepared, right, or unorganized in your self-care regarding appropriate clothing and being warm, that is going to be a toll on whether or not you can compete optimally the next day. Like, there's this old adage, you cannot race well with cold hands and cold feet, either of those things. If you go to the start line and your feet are like clubs or your hands are like in a wooden, right? You, I, I don't think you, your chances of pulling together a race are really, really hard. So we just say, look, here's the list of things you need. And you know, like it's easy for coaches to process this, right? Because we stand out there all day long you know, in the race stadium. And if you're not like, if you don't have your, you know, your Neos and, you know, all the other stuff you need, you know, over, over pants, you know, dry hats, dry gloves, you know, in ad infinitum to cover the kid that forgot their hat or their gloves, then, you know, then you can't make it through the day and you're being ineffective as a coach because you're trying to not freeze your butt off. Right. And, and so we really spend a bunch of time with our kids about, yeah, you know, taking that extra few moments and getting everything organized for race day. So, and, you know, I mean, there's really no excuse anymore. There is 
so, so many great products that are out there uh, that help us be able to deal with inclement weather. But you never know in the Intermountain West, you know, it can be anything right on any day. You can you can't see what's coming over the mountain. And next, thing you know, you're at a place like Jackson. Were you there last year where it was snowing sideways at a 25 mile an hour wind in that classic sprint prelim where yeah, it yeah. went from like groomed tracks to t eight to 10 inches deep. And that stadium is fully exposed, right? And there's no, and they have this little tiny, it's nice, but this little tiny warming hut. And it's like, we had kids, you know, struggling just to make it through the rounds because they couldn't manage their, you know, their self-care. Anyway. It clearly makes a huge difference too in the second day, whether you recover or not. And, and, you know, if you have cold muscles all night, you're shot the next day, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just, it is just, you know, we, we confer, we confuse being tough with being smart sometimes, you know, we think, ah, you know, we got to be tough. It's like, ah, I don't know what that really proves. Right. So anyway, so anyway, we're, we're super stoked about, um, you know, about giving kids that, that, uh, uh, that information because we just think it results in better performance and kids are happier and, you know, it's like, if you're going to do all this work, why not just get this last piece of the puzzle together? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I've been the Toka Glove designer for as long as we've had them. Um, curious, you wouldn't mind sharing with us what your favorite Toka Glove is and why? It, it, being a coach and a skier, it's a neat perspective. Well, these little sausages here have been damaged <laughs> uh, in my own ski racing career. I did a race where I had just blisters on all my fingers at the old Suicide Bowl in Ishpeming. Did you ever get the chance to race there? 1983 Junior Nationals. Yeah, baby. Yeah, the, I mean, awesome venue. I don't think it really exists anymore. It got eaten up by the iron line. But uh, but uh, I froze my fingers really bad. So my hands really, really suffer in the winter if I don't take good care. And I'm trying to – you guys sell this glove that's anatomically shaped really well, like all your gloves, and it's got the windproof, uh, windproof stopper on the back. I think it's believe I believe it's called the Thermo Plus. Yeah, and it's a soft it, shell. Yeah, yeah, and it's got enough insulation to keep these lobster, you know, these sausages warm. But I can hold on to corks and scrapers with it. I mean, I can be, I can manage the dexterity required of using the equipment associated with waxing while keeping my hands gloved. And and I am sorry to say, Ian, as I get these really nice ski coaching racing gloves from you once in a while and then i do things like uh repair snowmobiles wearing them right or or change tires flat tires on vans wearing them so i beat the crap out of my gloves but these things are great because they're really well made and i know this sounds like a you know like me just fawning a little bit but if my gloves don't work i'm hosed so anyway Thermo Plus, man, I'm into those things. I wear the mittens, too, occasionally, the, the lobsters, um, if it's really, really, like, Fairbanks cold. But I always change to my gloves. Those ther I believe they're Thermo Pluses, if I remember correctly. And uh, I, wear, I always switch to those when it's actually time to start working on a bench. And I wear them a lot for skiing myself. Um, here, we can get nice afternoon warming sometimes and you don't need those you can go with the thinner glove but uh but uh i'm i'm sold man they're they're great products i'm into it thank you yeah you're welcome
Rick, uh, you've been doing this for a long time. You're obviously very successful. Um, can you tell us what mistakes that parents of young skiers might commonly make? Here's your chance to get in your soapbox. Uh, I think there's, there's what I probably, I, I, this one, I'm not, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about, but I, until just like a few minutes ago, cause I glanced over to the side and I saw a comment of, I had to send a note to a parent about, and, um, and I said, one of the things I think that a lot of parents make a little bit of a mistake of is unwittingly creating more pressure for their athletes. Um, and they can create more pressure very, very innocently by over asking about results, um, getting a little too granular about race strategy and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, you don't need to tell your kid that they're in a race. They, they know they're in a race, right? There's enough pressure already without um, the key people, support mechanisms, parents and coaches in their lives to you know, point out the obvious, like trying hard and putting it out there is going to help. They, they got that. Now, kids, just like anybody, you know, their work's in progress and they may unwittingly sabotage themselves on race weekends. But the other place that parents can make you know, can have some challenges in terms of supporting their children is, is spending too much time on the obvious things that need to be improved. Now that might seem a little counterintuitive, but you got to remember teenagers have been hardwired evolutionarily to question authority and to leave the nest, right? That's what we're wired to do, right? As kids. I mean, if you start getting at loggerheads with your 16-year-old, a lot of it just has to do with that's what 16-year-olds are supposed to do, right? Because they're going to get kicked out of the tribe and they got to go over to the next valley over and carve out another, uh, you know, tribal community, right? I'm sort of going off a little bit here. But, but, but parents, I think, need, are best served when they need, when they understand that in order for us as a community of people to support an individual, let's say a kid racing, optimally, we all have a set of jobs, right? As a coach, my job is to direct a kid regarding their physical preparation and their technical preparation and maybe their race tactics, right? A parent's job is to make sure a kid is well-fed, has a warm place to sleep at night, has a, a, a clearly uh, communicated unconditional support system for a, a child, right? Because it ultimately will be the parent where even in the closest coaches relationships, if a kid feels safe and non-judged in the parent-child relationship, they'll open up to the parent, right? And, and talk to them about some of the challenges they may be facing. If they don't think the parent's going to say, well, I told you to do that better, right? That doesn't do anything, right? And so, so, and then there are their teammates. Their teammates of a of a competitor have another set of, you know, now I want to say responsibilities, but support systems that they develop as teammates, right? So we all have our jobs, right? It was really interesting to me that it was a really good Norwegian head coach. Uh, it might have been Broughton, Broughton. Um, who said one time in something I read that like he as the 
team leader head coach for the Norwegian national team on race day. At that point, his job became making sure the oatmeal was done really well. <laughs> right. Because all of his work was done already. Right. And he had his wax techs doing what they had to do. They had the course coaches doing what they had to do. So his job at that point was to do a good job of making the oatmeal. <laughs> right. Because everybody needed the oatmeal to be really good. Right. And so, we all have our jobs and sometimes parents, like I see this a lot with waxing, right? And of course we're in a transform, transformative period with regards to what's gonna happen with waxing, with the fluorocarbon ban, new products coming and all this kind of stuff, right? And parents, you know, you can see this a lot in waxing where parents can unwittingly be so engaged with trying to do something in support of their child by grabbing their skis and I'm gonna go wax them for you, right? Where at practice yesterday, the coach was saying, I want to the kid, I want you to wax your skis. I want you to understand the work that goes into developing the skis. We'll advise you on the product to put on, right? But you need to know how to hold a scraper. You need to know how to operate an iron. You need to know how to cork the ski because then that's going to make you better at understanding how skis work as an athlete and then when your coach is working with you to fine-tune your skis on race day you're more likely to interact with them in a cooperative way to then arrive at do we get more kick do we take a kick away are my skis a little slower are they not slow because as an athlete you're informed and parents can be trying to do so much for their kids because they want to but now they're short-circuiting that right? So it all falls under the category of be the parents, let the coaches do the coaching. Uh, if you happen to be Allison Kiesel, okay, then you get a little more bandwidth, <laughs> right? Because I'm not, you know, obviously Allison Kiesel knows what the hell she's doing when it comes to ski coaching or Sverry Caldwell or whoever else, right? But my point just being that, like, if we all do our jobs better, then the kid's support system is more comprehensive and more effective. So I would say, don't make it harder than what it is by dialing up the pressure and figuring out your role as a parent in the most effective way. Sorry, Thank you. that was another one. You got me going again, sorry. <clears throat> so here's a question for you, it may or may not be ski related. What do you know now that you wish you had known when you were 18? 18 in terms of like, in, in the context of skiing or just in general? Either, whatever comes to mind. Um, probably if, if I, if I, if I thought about it, I would probably say, don't be afraid to ask for help from others. Be open to, um, opportunities that might not seem as obviously advantageous. And, uh, you know, um, I was always a fairly collaborative kid, so I was always willing to work with other people, but uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is something that just is kind of a fun question, but what's something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Oh, I don't think I'm too surprising. Um, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> I like playing my electric guitar really loud when my wife's not around. See, I didn't know uh, that. 
I'm not, I'm not that good. I would, the neighbors would attest that <laughs> I'm not that good. Um, uh, let's see. Um, yeah, uh, I like music. Um, I spend an inordinate amount of time sort of trying to figure out what, you know, like what musicians, why musicians have been good. It's just something an interest have. I played an instrument all through my younger years uh, from like as early as I could remember all the way up into college when I finally sort of left music behind and uh, got more involved in athletics. Uh, and then um, oh, I spent a lot of time fishing. Uh, my wife and I spent a lot of time, you know, sort of trying to find places where people don't typically go and going there like you know little mountain hidden mountain valleys and sort of nooks and crannies again that's a little bit of we just live in this amazing place yeah. right so it's like i sort of look at a map and go okay what's what's a little valley that has no trail near it and no road near it and how do we get there and just go see what's there so we'll do that a little bit and sort of poking around and uh anyway so that's probably it yeah sounds great last yeah. question do you have a a life philosophy or mantra that can be explained in a few words? No. Um, try hard. Be open to possibilities. Be thankful. Be grateful to people around you. Um, I, I mean, I think this stuff, you know, humans been human beings have been trying to work in modern societies at being better versions of human beings for a, for a while now, for several thousand years. And, um, you know, try hard, be thankful, uh, be engaged, be collaborative. Those things are all basic instructions for how to, you know, try to do best with the time we got on the earth. So, Like I said, I asked a bunch of your athletes for some input. And one of the things that came up regularly was your attitude of gratitude. You know, you'll show up at a workout and be like, man, I am so glad to be out here with you all today. It's a wonderful day. <clears throat> You're the first person of the 24 interviews I've done. Not that, you know, there's only so much you can say, but who's mentioned the importance of being grateful, being thankful. Um, I appreciate that. Because I think that's wow. a, a key part to being, to living a happy life, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, we just, you know, you get X amount of time on the rock. I don't want to wax too philosophical here, but, you know, and, and you know, these are crazy times right now, make no mistake. And if we could just get everybody to cut each other a little bit of slack, um, we might, we might find our way through, I think. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm always going to be optimistic about the capacity humans have for being better. I mean, so anyway, so again, sorry. Oh, I like it. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Ian, for doing all this. I mean, it's really cool that you're put this time into this. Um, and the only thing I would probably say is whenever somebody gets a chance to maybe do this, it stimulates in, in you know, people like you or me who are having this conversation an opportunity to be more reflective and, cons and consider sort of your motivations and your, your behaviors and all the things that are maybe things that you should know about about yourself and so you know to other coaches I would just say you know 
spend some time on your craft it, and, and, and you will, you know, it, it works, it helps, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, like my heroes in ski coaching are people like Sten Feldheim and Ruff Patterson and it's very Caldwell, you know, these guys are, were amazing coaches. Right. And one of the things that I think that probably connects the thread to like coaches who, especially at the junior level, remember we're not, we're not, you know, NFL coaches getting millions and millions of dollars in salary associated with this mega promotional machine around like, for example, football. Right. So if you can think a little bit about regularly about like how and why you're doing stuff, I think you end up ultimately having a better chance of being able to be successful. So there, Mary go. Now I hope we're done. Sorry. Thank you. You're welcome. There, there's something else that your athletes said in a regular basis that you, you say in your uh, team talks before an event to remind them not to take things too seriously because they put the work in already. And I don't have it in front of me. I could take a second to look up, but it's something along the lines of at the end of the day, you're wearing skimpy tight Lycra outfits doing circles in a field or something like that. Can you improve? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Stan might have some version of this too. It's like, don't take yourself. I mean, we've, we're trying really hard. We're training really hard. When the guy says go, give it everything you got. No doubt about it. And for some kids, they can turn themselves inside out and, I, you know, we applaud that. Right. But at the end of the day, we're just skiing around in, in, in Lycra and skinny skis in a field in a sport nobody cares about. Right. So, and, and we all care deeply about it. Right. I don't mean to minimize anybody's commitment, but if you can keep that perspective, it actually has a way of freeing you to be able to access actually all that you have to give to it. Right. Because you are then free to say, I'm going as deep as I can go and reach as far inside of myself as I can go, right? I can go all the way back to the back of the pain cave and start moving around some old tires and chains and shit, right? <laughs> right? Because, because I'm not carrying a burden, right, with me. If you're carrying a burden and you're trying to go to this place that you haven't gone before physically, emotionally, whatnot, it, you're, all you're doing is making it harder. So stop making it so hard and focus on the thing you've been preparing to do. So go do it. Cool. Right. Yeah, super. And like, uh, the kids laugh because I always say, do you have a dog? And then they go like, yeah, I go, okay. Does your dog like to go for a run? And they're like, oh yeah, he just loves it. He goes crazy. If we're going to go for a run, I go, is the dog checking their heart rate? Are they, are they taking their pulse? Do they know how long they're going for? No, the dog just loves the joy of running, right? It, there's no, the dog doesn't have any outcome goals saddling them. They're just giving it everything they have, right? Be your dog. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, uh, now and then it gets best to me if all, if I'm in really bad shape, I've been traveling and working like I do four to five days in the winter and, and I'll, I'll jump in a race like the Boulder Mountain Tour, one of those races, and I'm at the start thinking, what the heck am I doing here? I'm in horrible shape, and this is going to hurt We've my hell, here. and yeah. I'm going to embarrass myself or whatever. And then I always correct myself by saying, hey, you take days off to do this, so you better damn enjoy it, you know? And then you <laughs> kind of a funny. better. 
Yeah, then you end up actually going out and skiing better because yeah. you're not carrying around this tension, right? You go like, all right, I'm here. Let's not talk myself out of having the day exactly. that I can have, right? And the kids do that a lot. They talk right. themselves out of having the day because because they are, they're carrying all these expectations and burdens, right? And if you talk to like the really good skiers, right? When the, or good athletes, right? When they get to the highest levels of competition, what they typically report their mind state to be is they get to flow by getting rid of all this other stuff, mm. right? And, and they, they work really hard to get to flow state and, and because they know if they're in flow state, then they can access their capacities, both physical, uh, men, uh, you know, emotional, spiritually, you know, they can get to that place, but if they have burden, right. And expectation, then they can't Right, the place to apply challenge to yourself is in, you know, on June 15th, when, you know, the coach is standing there and say, okay, the prescription today is, you know, six to 10 by five minutes. And then you come back down the hill and the coach says, and you're, you're starting, you may be thinking about shortening the workout, right? And you're like, are you healthy? Have you eaten a lot? Are you rested? Did you sleep well last night? Okay, go do two more, right? That's when you apply pressure to yourself to try harder, right? But on race day, the, the hay's been put in the barn. Cut it out. Stop doing that to yourself, right? So anyway, yeah, I, that's my philosophy about that. Yeah. I was talking with Ben Luscart the other day, and he was talking about probably the best race he ever had. And he said during the race, he was his mind was perfect. He was pretty much just focused on the next 10 meters in front of him the entire race. And when you think about it, that's all a dog does. That's what the dog does. He might take a you know glance around, but for the most part, he's not worried about his finish, his start, what his mom's going to say. He's just worried about the next 10 meters, you know? It's pretty cool. It's as pure as it gets, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Your dog just wants to go for a run. You yeah. got to be like the dog on race day, man. I mean, you got to take care of everything, but, uh, but, but yeah. And, you know, and so that's just, you know, and I mean, I'm not making this stuff up myself. This is all supported in, you know, a myriad of sports science uh, and exercise um, psychology books and, you know, control, control the things that you can do, do what's in front of you better Right there, you know, the, the, the baseball coach, Joe Madden, who has sort of, he's a bit of a new age guy, although he is like 65 years old. He was the guy that was coaching the Cubs when they finally broke the, whatever it is, hundred year curse of never winning uh, world series. He had a t-shirt made for his team, for the baseball team. That's spring training. And the shirt said, do simple better. Hmm. Right. And there's a lot to that message. So I went out and had a bunch of those shirts made and gave them to all the kids. Oh, cool. Now, do simple better. Right. And, and so anyway, but, but yeah, I think uh, you know, undo burden. It's hard enough as it is. Don't make it any harder. Yeah. Well, right. this has been a thrilling interview for me anyway. Um, I've enjoyed every really? minute of it. I, yeah, thrilling. I've really enjoyed it. And if nothing else, I really appreciate you spending this time with me. And a lot of people are going to be listening to this, and I'm sure are going to really enjoy it as well and, and learn a lot and kind of reset the perspective. Um, Rick, I wanted to thank you as well for, for being such an icon and selfless worker and 
for the ski community, especially in the in Wood River Valley. Um, been at it for a long time, and you've blessed so many people's lives, not just in terms of skiing, but their whole lives, like Max said, but a lot of people have said. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, I respect you very much, and I admire you. And um, I hope that uh, you have a good day. I'm glad you made your drive today safely. And I'm, I'm going to listen to this talk with my daughter, Pearl, and, and kind of chew it over. And um, just thank you again. Well, thanks, Ian. And best to you and the family. Say hey to Pearl. You guys stay safe down there and take care. Yeah, we'll do.